0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you
1: went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's.
0: Since you're listening to this podcast, we have a very special offer for you. You can try six issues of BBC History Revealed magazine for just 9 That's a saving of 70% on the shop price. BBC History Revealed is the all-action history magazine suitable for the whole family. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you won't miss out. You can try three issues for just nine ninety five, saving a huge seventy percent. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the fifteenth of May, twenty twenty one. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history
2: magazine.
0: I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, we've got the second episode in our new series on Britain's greatest prime ministers.
2: Hello, and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in Number 10. Today we'll be hearing the first nomination of historian and broadcaster Dominic Sandbrook, who chose three-time 20th century Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. You say that Stanley Baldwin has an unassailable claim to be Britain's greatest peacetime prime minister. For people who don't know anything about him at all, um, when was his sort of tenure and what's the headline thing from his from his period?
1: So Baldwin was Prime Minister between the World Wars, basically. He was the defining British politician of that era, the sort of nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. And he's He's kind of forgotten now because he's eclipsed by Churchill and Chamberlain, basically. That's the whole of um, interwar history has been reduced to those two. But I think Baldwin's achievement uh, makes sense when you look at the context of the time. So basically, Britain had come out of the First World War. It was uh, a bruised and, and battered country, very unhappy place in many ways, a lot of turbulence. Obviously, the rest of the world was kind of going to pot in the 30s. Dictators, Nuremberg rallies you know, Kristallnacht, fascism, communism. And Baldwin's great achievement was that he kept Britain united. He was a consensual leader who ruled, uh, or who ruled, who governed, rather, a country that was r- relatively at ease with itself. Now, the thing is that our understanding of that period has become sort of slightly debased to so just the Depression and it's sort of men in flat caps looking miserable outside um, soup kitchens. But actually, that's not really... I mean, that's part of the reality, but it's not the whole picture. And Baldwin led a country that was probably more united than any other major industrialised nation in the world. So what that meant was that when we went into the Second World War, we were more united. We were more comfortable in our own skin. We had fewer divisions. And after the sort of disasters of the beginning of the war, we fell back on this sense of, well, Britain fell back on this sense of sort of patriotic solidarity that, had there been a different prime minister, had British politics been had a different character in the 20 years beforehand, I don't think it would have existed. So you'd have seen something like you had in France, where it was much, much more fractious and divided. And I think that was Baldwin's ultimate achievement, that Britain did go into the war, that he'd he done his best for peace. Britain went into the war united, obviously roused by sort of Churchill. And, um, and of course, Baldwin was written out of the story by Churchill afterwards, so everyone forgot that he'd really been there. But I think he was, the, he was the master of kind of modern politics. So as Baldwin was the prime minister who benefited from the first mass elections, so we forget that obviously, you know, before the First World War, most women didn't, well, all women, <laughs> didn't vote. And a lot of men didn't vote either. So Baldwin was the big winner from all that, actually. And that was a, you know, he set the template for 20th century politics.
2: I mean, to what extent uh, was forging this national character, if you like, um, can we trace that back to his personal character? Was it an extension of it? Do you think
1: it exactly was? So Borden was a—he was an interesting man in all kinds of ways. He was the son of a West Midlands ironmaster, so his um, father ran this big sort of metal bashing company in Worcestershire, and was a very paternalistic kind of employer. Um, yeah, you know, he was a Tory, but he was a kind of—if you like—a relatively cuddly Tory, sort of nice to you know, gave them. You know, an hour off on Sundays or something. Um, and uh, uh, Baldwin sort of had this sense, immense sense of civic duty and civic responsibility. So his his style of politics was pretty emollient. I mean, he he has the distinction of having been um, uh, got into trouble at Harrow for it's not clear exactly what, but it's basically either writing or distributing porn um, as a as a young man. So that he, there was a sort of colourful side to his character. But he, he was basically, his style was very kind of avuncular and reassuring. And um, he was, a, in that sense, he was a kind of new kind of, of Tory. So the Tories at the beginning of the 20th century had generally, you know, they'd been these sort, of, sort of aristocratic diehards, reactionaries really, sort of howling against the modern world. Baldwin wasn't really like that at all. He was a, a modern politician. He was a commoner, not an aristocrat. Um, when he became leader of the Tory party and prime minister, some of the old grandees were really shocked. They thought, you know, he wasn't quite the, you know, he, was, he wasn't quite the, the right type. But, of course, because he wasn't that type, it made it easy for him to appeal. He had this very strong appeal to kind of middle-class voters and what you might call, what would have been called at the time, respectable working-class voters, some of those people who were quite aspirational. And his general style was always about conciliation, Rather than confrontation. So, in other words, if you think of sort of Margaret Thatcher at one extreme, he was at the other. And his big thing, you know, he was always he'd always say to the other Tories, you know, there's this new party, the Labour Party, which is sort of being decried in the media as Bolsheviks and all the rest of it. And we can't, we have to work with them to run the country. You know, they are part of the country. Uh, they're going to be part of the kind of political constitution, and they're good chaps. Uh, will work together with them. And in the 1930s, he did work together with them in the in the national government. Um, and that sort of sense of... I mean, that was very much, as you say, his personality. His style was to reach for the common ground. And one way that he did that, which was enormously influential and is still sort of so deeply rooted in our culture, was he w- he had this immensely nostalgic... Sort of style. So he would give these speeches on the radio using the new technology in which he'd be sort of going on and on about the countryside is England and, you know, as long as England exists, you'll see plows coming over the horizon and, you know, old sort of farmers and all this. And this was, you know, in many ways, this was rubbish you know, he he was a product of a world that had destroyed that world, the industrial kind of world, and his voters didn't didn't live in that world at all. But they liked it, they all enjoyed it, as we do today. You know, people like these kind of nostalgic pastoral fantasies. And Baldwin kind of, he created the formula for that. You know, he was the master of it. And people mocked him, sort of intellectual type people, highbrow people, despised him utterly. They They thought he was the an utter waste of space and a symbol of everything, a philistinism and backward-looking and all this kind of thing. But the common sort of man and woman, as it were, often rather like Baldwin. Even people who didn't vote for him never really hated him or or took against him. They saw him... He played the part, I guess, of the old-fashioned Englishman. And he played that in a very clever, modern way, using in particular kind of the radio and newsreels. If you watch his newsreel performances on YouTube they're surprisingly unstuffy so you compare them with the other the other um politicians of the day and they're kind of like 19th century politicians clutching their lapels like they're addressing a crowd of fifty thousand people whereas he kind of chats like a relatively normal human being and it's quite sort of down to earth and self-deprecating and um that style, you know, for, for people who in the next, let's say, 50 or 60 years, pol- politicians would, also, would often talk about him as the model to follow. So the Labour Party in the 60s and 70s, they would say of Harold Wilson or Jim Callaghan, they're trying to be Labour's Baldwin. They're trying to be your friend who lives next door, who kind of helps to look after you and stuff. Um, and so that, uh, that became very sort of that formula became very powerful. I think it's actually still very powerful in British politics.
2: Did the opposition he faced from some of the old guard and the intellectuals, I suppose, um, cause him any problems? And were there any problems that he inherited uh, during his
1: tenures? OK, well, those are, those are all sorts of questions had one, one question. So first of all, on the problems he inherited, yeah, he, he became prime minister in the early 20s, uh, a very incredibly difficult time. So Britain has come out of the First World War. Lots of people have been killed. Um, sort of shell shock and, and and a sense of trauma. At the same time, unemployment was rising fast, very high. There was a sort of a panic about the national finances uh, Britain is is just coming out of the um, Irish War of Independence. So it's kind of the United Kingdom has been torn in two. There's all kinds of problems in um, the empire and the colonies. Uh, but also politically, sort of their landscape has been completely re- redrawn with the emergence of the Labour Party. You've got the Russian Revolution and the rise of communism. So people are very jittery about what they see as subversion and the prospect of a revolution and all this. So he basically comes into power at an incredibly febrile moment. Um, and actually, you can say of his whole time in, in office in the 20s and 30s, it's an ex- g- It's a sort of gigantic exercise in crisis management. I mean, that's true of any politician, actually. It doesn't make him any difference. But you were saying about the opposition. So he had opposition, really. You can sort of divide it into various categories. I mean, I talked about intellectuals. So I'm thinking then about sort of Bloomsbury groupish kind of people, people writing poems on country lawns who despise Baldwin and all he stands for. But he doesn't need to worry about them. I mean, you can forget about them completely. Uh, the people he knew really needed to worry about were what were called the press lords, the press barons. So these were people like um, uh, Lord Rothermere, the owner of the Daily Mail. Um, they campaigned against Baldwin very fiercely. He wasn't right-wing enough for them, and he wasn't keen enough on the empire, and they saw him as, a, as an appeaser, I suppose. As a, I'm, not, I'm not talking about appeaser of the Nazis. I'm talking about an appeaser of, of change, of, of, of the left and stuff. And he, he fought this sort of long-running battle against the press barons. Uh, very unusual, you might say, for a Tory leader to be fighting the Tory press. Um, he famously compared them. He said, said they had power without responsibility, which was the hallmark of the harlot down the ages, um, in this sort of public speech. So he basically calls them whores, um, which is a pretty big thing for a Tory leader to do. Um, and people constantly sort of sniped at him about this. So Churchill... Who is now the great hero? Well, unless you're sort of uh, of the sort of woker side of the spectrum, Churchill uh, opposed Baldwin about India because Baldwin wanted to give India a degree of self government. Churchill thought this was an absolutely terrible thing and sort of presaged the end of the empire and the, 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 the sort of the downfall of all human civilization. And he constantly sort of attacked Baldwin about this. But it was actually, of course, Baldwin who was in tune with the public mood and indeed with what we would now consider to be the sort of the course of history uh, in giving India self-government. But but Churchill, partly because of that, he he to sort of dissed Baldwin in his memoirs. So and he would, when he was playing chess, he would get out his pawns and he would say to his opponent, get out your Baldwins. Baldwin's sort of reputation never really recovered from Churchill's beating. Or indeed, I mean George Orwell said of Baldwin, he's not it wasn't merely a stuffed shirt, he was a hole in the air. But, of course, Orwell was speaking for what you might call the sort of more high-minded intellectual left-wing tendency. So Baldwin's reputation suffered from attacks from both sides. And what was forgotten was that actually millions of people had actually quite liked him.
2: What would you say are the three episodes that most define um, his career?
1: Well, one is the general strike um, of 1926. So I think it's not so much that Baldwin suppressed the general strike, which he did, Um, But it's actually his tone afterwards. So he doesn't glory in the Tories kind of victory over the trade unions. He told his comrades, you know, we must be good winners, uh, gracious in victory. You know, we shouldn't sort of rub the unions or the the Labour Party's um, noses in the dirt. And that meant that he wasn't hated in the same way that, let's say, Margaret Thatcher was hated after the miners' strike of the 80s. You know, her instinct was always basically when you've got your opponent down to kind of drive the knife into the back of their neck whereas Baldwin's was to kind of beat him down and then offer him a a slightly patronising helping hand out of the gutter so that's one thing number two again an example of his more consensual style I suppose is there's a colossal economic crisis in 1931 when you have really the advent of the Great Depression in Britain the Labour government splits in two and the country's in a sort of dreadful um, ferment and Baldwin formed the national government with Labour's leader, Ramsay Macdonald, who was then basically kicked out of the Labour Party. And um, Macdonald ran, Macdonald was Prime Minister, and Baldwin ran the, effectively ran the government behind the scenes. And he was happy to play second fiddle, which was somebody who had been Prime Minister, who'd been Prime Minister twice, actually, in the 1920s, was quite a you know, you might think it's quite a surprising thing to do, especially as most of the MPs elected to to support the National Government were Tories, they weren't um, McDonald's followers. But he was perfectly happy to be the sort of the figure behind the scenes, which again I think is a sign of, it's a sign of security actually. He didn't have that gnawing insecurity that drives a lot of um, politicians to the top. He was comfortable, you know, being number two um, or being the sort of puppet master, if you like. The third thing, oh gosh, the third thing I suppose that he's, is, the, is appeasement. Um, so this is often used as a sort of stick to beat him. You know, why didn't he basically, he was Prime Minister 1935 to 1937. And um, why didn't he, you know, declare war on Hitler or, or take really strong action against Hitler or any of this sort of stuff. And actually the answer to that is is really straightforward. The country was not, united behind war at that stage. Basically, in some ways, you know, his this is a massive uh, uh, sort of hot topic and probably lots of people will be, you know, outraged to hear this. I mean, my view is appeasement was not necessarily a failure because basically you had to give Hitler enough rope to hang himself. In other words, you had to... People have been so traumatised and brutalised by the First World War that they didn't want another war. There was a colossal peace movement in the 1930s. And the only way that Britain would go into the war united is if you showed beyond the slightest possible doubt that the Nazis were villains and couldn't be trusted. And in that sense, I actually think Baldwin's strategy was successful. And he started rearming. He started building up the RAF. Um, during his time in office. It's not true that they did nothing, but he felt hamstrung by the opposition in the country, by the fact that the Labour Party was basically a pacifist party. There was a very strong disarmament movement. He just thought he he could go as far as, as he could and no further. But the benefit of all that was that when Britain did go to war in 1939, nobody said... Well, the British are just, you know, hideous warmongers and they've been itching for this war. And actually we should have given Hitler a chance. You know, the Germans had legitimate grievances. Maybe, you know, you know, we didn't launch a sort of Iraq style preemptive campaign. If we had, and even if we'd won, people would still be arguing about it now. They'd they'd probably, you know, there'd still be a load of books. People saying, "Oh, we should never have attacked the Germans in 1936. How cruel and wicked we were. Hitler was actually a a splendid fellow. He was just a bit misguided." Whereas, as it was, we were able to go in completely united and, um, and and sort of. Solidaristic. I'm, I'm sorry, this is now turning into just a sort of tirade. I'll stop talking.
2: No, it's fascinating because, I mean, I, I, I think part of what you're saying is we've got this established narrative from our viewpoint in the 21st century of what happened in the lead up to the war and his role in it. But it sounds like what you're saying is it wasn't such about him as a politician. It was about what the country needed, which seems to be a theme of his career the whole way through,
1: trying to do the best for the country as a whole. Yeah, and, that's, and that sounds ridiculously drippy. And um, a lot of people would sort of say, what kind of fool thinks that any politician is motivated by the national interest um, and all that? How, I mean, what I would say is, as, as actually proof of that is, you know, we live in this immensely uh, cynical age where we assume that politicians are motivated only by self-interest. But at the end of the First World War, Baldwin wrote a letter... He was financial secretary to the Treasury, so a sort of junior role in the government, coalition government, as it then was. And he wrote a letter to the Times in which he said, we have taken on colossal debts to basically pay for the First World War. And I think rich people who've done quite well out of the war should make donations out of their own personal fortunes to pay off the national debt. And I will pay a fifth of my fortune towards, um, I would give it to the Treasury to pay off our national debt because his iron business, his family's business had done obviously pretty well out of the war. But the telling thing is he did it anonymously. So the letter wasn't signed. He signed it FST, Financial Secretary of the Treasury. But of course, no one would know what that would mean. I mean, um, they wouldn't assume it was him. Um, and it only came out much later on that it was him who had done it. Now, there was no political benefit for, in that whatsoever and he was giving up what would now be millions of pounds and of course you know people didn't actually follow suit you know it wasn't this sort of great rush of of high-minded people giving all their fortunes away but i think that's a sign that actually he wasn't just a sort of cynical operator um of course he was you know you, you don't get to the top without being ruthless and without being cunning and all of those kinds of things but there was more to him than that he was motivated by a very strong sense of like a lot of people at the time he had a he was you know, he's quite a strong religious faith, he had a strong sense of public duty, all of these kinds of things that of course are now, you know, are more conspicuous by their absence than anything else.
2: What would you say his biggest
1: flaws were? That's a good question. So I suppose the biggest flaws were he exuded a sense of complacency. And that's why it's been very easy to blame him for appeasement. I mean, you could argue that in some ways he had quite a lot to be complacent about because if you're looking at Europe in the mid 1930s, the one country that is relatively settled is Britain. So we've had the Depression, but there hasn't been any kind of big uprising, there hasn't been a massive political meltdown. The national government has won massive election victories. Relatively speaking, Britain seems okay. But Baldwin exuded a sense of slight self-satisfaction, I would say. So he would spend colossal periods of time on holiday in France. He would go sort of go off for months at a time and just sort of stroll in the park and look at books and sort of relax and stuff, which, you know, didn't it it, it sort of it didn't suggest a great sense of urgency about the worsening international Um, situation. I mean, you can sort of try and spin that and say, well, actually, you know, that's what the country wanted and stuff. But I think um, to some people, particularly obviously Churchill, that was very frustrating. They just thought, you know, here's somebody who's basically asleep while Europe is sliding towards Armageddon. Mm.
2: Um, And is there a particular policy or event that you think proved their undoing or that was particularly detrimental to their career?
1: Well, this is a really interesting thing because Baldwin is one of the few people who, who left office generally... Covered with honors, so he has that kind of exit that all politicians dream of. He's sort of applauded off the stage. You know, people doing the sort of metaphorical equivalent of throwing garlands of flowers and all the rest of it. So he's won. He's been prime minister three times. He's defined politics in the twenties and thirties. He is, you know, this sort of um, massive national figure. All this sort of stuff. And he's also managed the abdication crisis. So he's managed to get rid of Edward VIII, who's obviously a total unreliable dead loss, and bring in George VI. And and everything is great. And then the war breaks out and and people start to blame him. They say, you know, everything that went wrong in Dunkirk in 1940, we should have prepared, you know, often conveniently forgetting the fact that actually they had been dead against war a few years earlier. That's the nature of public opinion, isn't it? Uh, Very fickle. The the thing that came to symbolise that was that uh, the government tore down the iron gates from his house. So he had these sort of beloved old gates. They were a kind of family heirloom kind of thing. And they were torn down, um, even though Baldwin said, you know, could we not spare the gates, the ex-Prime Minister's gates? It was like, no, he must pay the price for his folly in the 1930s. And the gates were sort of taken down and melted down. And this was seen as a bit vindictive you know it was a sort of symbol of what he, so it was that it was almost a bit of a Tony Blairish scenario you know when tony blair left, left office in 2007 applauded out of the house of commons and now he you know he can't show his face on the high street without people shouting at him baldwin sort of faced the similar kind of thing at the end of his life so his sort of stock if you think of i was thinking of politicians roy jenkins late roy jenkins had this sort of sense of a stock market of politicians reputations baldwin's stock was incredibly high and then it just plummeted and never really came back. If you could ask him a question, uh, what question would you ask? <laughs> I'd ask him if it was a true story about the um, encounter that he had in a... Um, this is just an excuse for me telling another anecdote, actually. Um, uh, uh, about on a train. It tells you something about his reputation, that he was, um, he was on a train going somewhere and a man was sitting opposite him and stu- stared at him all the whole convinced that he recognised him and then eventually tapped him on the knee with his newspaper and said, didn't you used to be, didn't I used to be at school with you? Are you Stanley Baldwin? And the guy at Baldwin said, I am. And the man said, what are you doing now? And he was prime minister. (laughs) Um, And I think that's sort of, I'm sure that's an apocryphal story, but it sort of captures the sense that he was this, his ordinariness you know, that he wasn't somebody who imposed himself by force of charisma. It was actually his lack of charisma in a way that became his calling card. Anyway, I'm sure it's a, uh, I'm sure it's made up, but I'd ask him if it was true.
2: Finally, um, do you think that Baldwin and his career and his time in office has any lessons for the politics of 2021?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can divide politics into you can divide politicians into into two breeds there's the Lloyd George and there's the Baldwin so Lloyd George was the man who had previously been prime minister who Baldwin you know effectively kind of replaced in the in the sort of public narrative so Lloyd George as Baldwin called him was a dynamic force uh, Lloyd George was a showman he was a uh, he he captivated he was utterly corrupt but he Sort of captivated the crowds, and he was this very dynamic, he was the centre of every room, and he was all of this kind of thing. Now, I'm sure we can all think of um, recent politicians, <laughs> indeed some current politicians, who incarnate the Lloyd George. Lloyd George was also a terrible philanderer. Um, so, I, you know, you, you can probably all think of some politicians who are like that. Borden was the complete opposite. You know, he's a devoted family man. He's quiet. He's, he's, as I said before, you know, his ordinariness is his, is his calling card. And often Britain craves a Baldwin, I think. We like a bit of the showmanship for a while, but then we tire of it. And um, we want normality and calm and reassurance and sort of nostalgia, the sort of, sort of dad's army in, in human form. Politicians who hit that sweet spot often actually do pretty well. Um, That sort of Baldwinian style, It's, it's, it's hard to do, but if you can do it, I think, you know, a lot of election wins are there for the taking.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.